you know, there was a lot of things when it comes to tech regarding, you know, loyalty, AI and robots, which I think during the pandemic was really hot. Seems like people are starting to maybe soften a little bit on some of those, just realizing that the overcorrection needs to come back to something that's more hospitality based. Okay, ready? This is it. This is the show. What's with the pineapple? A brand new podcast from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. Pineapples don't grow in Michigan. No, not native to Michigan. Let me write that down. Putting a, a hospitality spin on what exactly is going on in Lansing. Shed some light on the industry specifically in Michigan. I think we're going to have some good guests. What is with the pineapple? What's with the industry? What's going on in Michigan? We can edit this if that's not right, right? All right, it's April. It's a new quarter. We don't have much time to do an intro because we have so much content to get to in this episode. But we're back in the same room. The audio. Correct. Should be better. Although it is worth noting that the interview portion of this podcast, we were not in the same room. A little behind the curtain magic. True, 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 true. But all the way around, I think the audio is going to be better than it was a couple weeks ago. So. So we're off to a better start. Absolutely. And uh, we do have a new presented by podcast sponsor that I want to shout out before we get into it. Fahey, Berzik, Schultz, and Rhodes Law Firm. They are our Q2 sponsor, presented by sponsor for the pod. Longtime supporters of the industry and association. They are the experts we rely on day in and day out uh, at the association. So uh, good to see that they're part of the pod. Absolutely. Okay, getting into it. Current events, Pineapple Express. A lot of content here. A lot has actually been happening. From across the country. True that. From every every corner of the country. So starting off, a California city's ban on gas-fueled kitchen equipment has been overturned, which is huge news. Dead. Ninth Circuit Court. California telling that city, Berkeley, no go. Natural gas bans have been on the rise, right? This is a national story, but it obviously has, it resonates in Michigan. We are dealing with this issue potentially in Ann Arbor. It does feel like that issue has lost some steam, some momentum of late in Ann Arbor. Some gas. I wasn't going to go there. This is an adult podcast. Uh, Not for swingers. Not for swingers, but it is mature. So... Great news, frankly, because if California is acknowledging that there are some very serious limitations uh, in in the pursuit of banning natural gas, I think it's going to put a halt. I think it's going to imperil what has already been a challenge. You know, we've really proactively engaged in Ann Arbor. Restaurants have come out and and made their voice heard. Restaurants of of all ilk, by the way, right? Like every every segment of the industry has made the voice clear and had a big impact uh, on city council there. And so to see this happen at the national level really does feel like we have changed the trajectory of where this is going. And you know, nothing's dead until it's officially dead. But that's a that's a good sign. And if this is not going anywhere in California, I think you're going to see it nationally. It's not going to see a big push in the near future either. Help set a precedent, even though it's across the country, right? For sure. All right. So moving on to Frankfurt, my favorite. Germany? No, my favorite northern town in Michigan. They are on the cutting edge, would you say, of battling the affordable housing crisis for employees in the industry? That might be a little too aggressive of a a statement, but it's my favorite town, so I got to give them their spotlight. But we've discussed on this podcast and in all other communications a million times, short-term rentals eliminating homes for year-round workers in tourist towns 
Uh, we talked in the last episode a little bit about that for Traverse City, but Frankfurt's not too far from there. And one of their solutions that we saw an article on is they have a new land trust where they're building more affordable homes. Yeah, it's 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 modest. It's maybe not changing the world overnight, but it's it's a good strategy to make sure some affordable housing makes its way in. Because Frankfurt is a poster child for this area, very tiny community. In the summer, it swells. It's mm-hmm. it's a little like Mackinac Island, but it's not actually an, an island internationally known destination. But it probably should be because you're right. Franklin is or Frankfurt is beautiful. <laughs> it is not Franklin. Frankfurt is beautiful, uh, but it is a very small town and it has a real crunch on the workforce side and where are those people going to live and how far are they going to have to come to be able to work in the very busy summer summer season when you were there almost every weekend, right? So Right. Uh, yeah, they're a town of 1,300 normally and it, it gets much larger than that starting in June. But yeah, so they're building 1,200 square foot homes with three bedrooms, one and a half baths and selling them for uh, around 175000 it's crazy to me that it, it's costing them two hundred thousand dollars to build. It, to give you a sense of inflation on the on that industry as well, twelve hundred square foot house costs twelve two hundred thousand dollars to build. So obviously, selling it for under cost to make it viable for the, for some of the workforce that's needed there. But that's that's part of the pinch in this issue as well, just how expensive it is to build. Right. Yeah. And interesting fact here the last five homes sold in frankfurt the median price was seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars the feeling that the, the, the people uh who live there year-round aren't the ones buying those houses you don't think yeah a little gentrification of but you know once you see it seeing is believing in frankfurt i encourage everyone to go there all right another story consumers are spending more money at restaurants than grocery stores yeah i mean this is not entirely new news to us when we see this every day but this got national attention. I did an interview for Axios earlier this week talking about this. And I think to the average, just the average consumer, they don't recognize or think about restaurants are a big part of their life. But the idea that restaurants have surpassed by a pretty big margin at this point, spending in grocery stores gives you a sense of just how much the culture has changed uh, around restaurants. Restaurants are absolutely imperative. And I think the industry is increasingly being a little more self-aware on this is, as well. When, when demand didn't cease, when inflation forced really dramatic price increases, right? I mean, there just was no option to not take some pretty big menu price increases. Uh, and demand didn't go away, right? This, this industry is just ingrained in the fabric of, of the American way of life now. And it's crazy. To, you see the stat that in the 70s, restaurants accounted for less than 25 cents of uh, the, the food dollar. And the fact that and then, and then we surpassed 50 cents a little while ago and that we are we are cruising towards 60, 65 cents of that total food dollar is is astonishing. But I think the industry, especially post pandemic, really fine-tuned its ability to meet consumer demand where it is, wherever it is. And it has to meet every aspect of it. Because if you're replacing all grocery food at this point for some people, you really got to hit on every on every note, not just be one thing. And I think that they've done, I think the industry has become so nimble out of necessity that it's it's doing a great job and it shows in the numbers. Absolutely. Yeah. Just to put a statistic on that, nationally, people spent 20.7% more at restaurants than on groceries in 2022. I also think it's worth pointing out that that doesn't mean restaurants are just flush with cash at this point. They have also suffered from inflation, and so margins are still very small. Yeah, listen, there is a difference between gross and net profits. They uh, The sales are, are, are up tremendously. The net profits still struggling for a lot in, in this industry because of those 
massive increases in cost overall. Let's move to a related story. And I didn't even get, this is so new. Breaking news. So new. I didn't even get to give you a sense, but this is part of it. Uh, this is this is a, a good segue to the next story. Restaurant Leadership Conference went down this week in Phoenix. A few of our board members were in attendance. Some of them, frankly, who will be on this call later, were presenting uh, on, on one of their other companies. Stay tuned for a little bit more of that later. But Restaurant Business just came out with uh, their big top 10 takeaways from the conference this week. And some of them are really interesting. We're not, we won't hit it on all 10, but let's hit on a few. What are the most interesting? It's going to be a trillion dollar year for the restaurant industry this year, according to the brand Technomic. That is the first time that we will eclipse that figure for this industry. That's that's notable. And, and it relates to the fact that restaurants outpacing grocery sales at this point. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a big number. Yep. Absolutely. Ghost Kitchens. We talked about this at the beginning of this spot when this podcast first began. Oh my God, ghost kitchens are the future. They're they're part of the uh, the COVID success story. Interest dramatically waning on the ghost on the ghost kitchen side doesn't mean they're dead. Uh, it just means I think that that market's going to be a little more niche and it's not going to quite be the the uh, be all save all for for some segments of the industry. But uh, I, I thought it was interesting to see that that. A, a pretty big, a steep arc and steep decline for ghost kitchens. That was a quick window. Yeah. Our partners at the National Restaurant Association were there and presenting and and talked about foodborne illness from a financial side of the equation. So how mm. expensive is it if you endure, let's say, a norovirus uh, outbreak in one of your, your restaurants? And the numbers are alarming. So let me just read directly from this so I don't misquote it. Factoring in lawsuits, the cost of detecting the source of an outbreak, retaining staff, and a host of other related costs, an instance of food poisoning will cost a quick service restaurant $1.8 million, a fast casual outlet $2.1 million, and a casual dining restaurant $2.2 million, said Larry Lynch, the association's SVP of Health, Safety, and Regulatory Services. Shout out, Larry. We know Larry well. We do. That's a really high number. Yeah. And... It's, it's a big deal, and it is a big hit to the viability of your restaurant, right? You can watch your reputation go down quickly, and so acting quickly is, is a big deal. And I think this was a big push to make sure that all operators are still taking food safety very very carefully. Obviously, that led to a big plug for ServeSafe. Yeah, I, think, I also think that it's worth pointing out, we're not into plugs here, but we offer free norovirus kits to Michigan Food Service operators this year as part of a grant. Shout out Amanda Smith, who's always leading the charge on Michigan Food Safety at michiganfoodsafety.com. But that just means very speaks to the relevancy of all the work we've been doing this year on that front. Every one of these stories that we're going to reference nationally have some sort of Michigan play in play. That's right. We and I, I think we may be the only one in the nation, the only state association in the nation that have received a grant and are pursuing these norovirus boxes. They're very convenient. They're very useful. If you have not taken advantage of one yet at your location, make sure that you go to MRLA.org and we'll make sure you get one. Absolutely. What other takeaways are on there? Well, I don't want to listen. I don't want to list all of these. I don't. I'll, I'll say quickly, operators are fascinated by ChatGPT. That is a good segue into what we will talk about in uh, our interview with the with Dave Dittenburn, the founder of BYOD, AI in its own right tied to this industry. We've talked about this all the time. This industry is very slow to react and to uh, adopt technology in relation to other industries. Uh, it's going to need to find a way to do so quickly because the environment for all of us 
is changing very quickly. So interesting there. Some interesting stuff on takeout. It has not, we talked about ghost kitchens, flatlining, and, and, and actually, frankly, seeing a pretty st- steep decline. Takeout hasn't. So I think this is pretty fascinating. According to the same uh, technomic company, pickup and delivery accounted for 8% of orders before the pandemic. Jumped to 17% in 2020, 16% in 2021, and 17% in 2022. That is barely a fall off from a massive jump, right? This We've talked about this repeatedly this industry has changed forever and how people get food get restaurant food is just it's not going to be the same the fact dine in is going to be a, a a unique experience for people it is not going to be the way they go and get meals frequently interesting yeah. or or both things are just more true now so norms are well we'll just grab food instead of going in but there's still a demand for the in-person experience oh it's not that the demand went away there is more demand i think that shows in the fact that again restaurant sales outpacing so dramatically grocery sales uh at this point it is a bigger pie than it was before but to have not seen uh, an ebb and a flow that is a a, a dramatic change of the overall percentage of, of uh, orders in a restaurant, and it doesn't seem to be ceasing. It's interesting. Yeah. All right, last one, and I don't want to, I don't even want to reference this one. Pickleball is the new golf. How could this be a takeaway from the Restaurant Leadership Conference? Sometimes it's okay to admit when you're wrong. Let's start there. Uh, I'll read straight up from, from the ad. Or from the article, based on the, on the crowd at Restaurant Leadership Pickleball event during the conference, restaurant operators of all ages have embraced pickleball and conference organizers should consider booking more courts next year to allow certain restaurant business editors to continue their winning streak. Oh, this sounds a little personal for restaurant yeah, business. Yeah, so they had a pickleball event at the conference. You buried the lead on that one. Yeah, and it's and, and this is apparently where business gets done. I is it the new golf? I don't it definitely is is popular beyond all comprehension for me. I, I don't I don't hate it. I just can't believe it's grown to be this popular. I think you hate it. Well, don't don't make me be the tennis guy who who hates pickleball. I But that's who you are. It, <laughs> I it is it is fascinating the 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 uh the expansion and how quick it's been. So there you go. So you were wrong. Edit that, Joe. All right. Uh, those are good takeaways. Thanks for bringing that to the table and not providing a copy of that story for me. Thank you. Last one on the list, menu labeling regulations are coming back. So um, I actually saw this late last night. On May 11th, the COVID public health emergency declaration will expire. And with it, the suspension of menu labeling enforcement by the FDA. So I think most companies that this would impact, correct me if I'm wrong, would already be in compliance with this. But a good reminder to the industry, restaurant chains with 20 or more locations with the same name are required to provide calorie content on menus, menu boards, and other point of sale materials and make other nutrition information available in writing on request. The National Restaurant Association has a lot of Q&A resources available on this as well. Yeah, I'm not sure practically how many this is going to immediately impact a lot of restaurants didn't change course. You know, I think that just became part of the experience over the last eight years. I, I remember when this was a hot big issue in the early teens, but it, it, it's been a settled issue for a long time. So I think it's for some, maybe they'll be making the change back, but most I think kept on with all, all of the menu labeling requirements throughout COVID. 
All right. That might be the biggest Pineapple Express segment that we've ever had. We toured the country. And if you count Frankfurt, Germany, then we really went international. Just like our listeners. (laughs) Moving on to Pineapple Plaudits. I have a few stories here. So the Island House and Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island were listed on the top 25 historic hotels of America, most magnificent gardens. Nice. Uh, Well-deserved, obviously. To me, they're number one and number two. Or maybe it's one and one A. I don't know. Yeah, which one's number one, which one's number two? They're all. They're both number one in my heart. You're not going to make me choose. I'm not going to say anything like that on the record. Obviously, both institutions in Michigan and well-deserved to make sure that they are on the list. Yes. All right. Chef Jimmy Hill, who has been a great partner of the association for many years. Love Jimmy Hill. We all do. He runs the Coldwater Prisons Culinary Program, and he was honored at the Pure Michigan Governor's Conference on Tourism last week as a story of inspiration uh, for his work in the culinary program at that facility and preparing uh, individuals to re-enter society and go into our industry. Yeah, we've had a partnership with Chef Jimmy Hill for years. He's been a great advocate for ProStart and helping. He, I mean, the, the number of individuals whose lives he has turned around, obviously to the benefit of this industry, those people are, are now working uh, gainfully employed and working successfully in this industry. But I just, the, the, on, the, on the human personal side, what he's been able to do is tremendous. Uh, great documentary in, involving him as well that was uh, before the uh, Detroit Film Festival earlier this year debuted as well. So uh, obviously, much deserved for Chef Jimmy Hill and uh, you know anything we can ever do to be helpful to him. We're, we're all in. Absolutely. Saddleback Barbecue also was honored at the Pure Michigan Governor's Conference on Tourism. Uh, They received a Certificate of Pure Achievement Award for all of the work that they do to help the community. So they helped the Gaylord tornado victims last year. Uh, Capital City Barbecue here in Lansing was in trouble, and they really leaned in to help them out, both by raising funds and just going there and helping them run the business. So accolades to them as well. I mean, we always talk about restaurants being the cornerstone of community and, and being at the heart where people gather, but so many of them are often leaders within their community feeling responsibility. I don't know if anyone embodies that more than Saddleback. They are always engaged positively with the community here in Lansing. And, you know, as this award will tell you, they, they, they will go outside of their their region and zone to, to help those in need. So uh, much deserved as well. Absolutely. All right, moving on to For Fork's Sake, the legislature is back from spring break and also traveling across the nation. I think you have some things you want to talk about from Arizona. Well, uh, the governor of Arizona, we really are going well beyond just the state of Michigan this week. But this one is relevant because the issue is hitting hotels everywhere. But the governor of Arizona vetoed legislation that was pushed aggressively by AHLA. Uh, and the Arizona Hotel and Lodging Association that would prevent, sort of preempt uh, any mandates requiring hotels to house homeless individuals. This is a growing issue. Right now, this is playing out in Los Angeles County, and there is a mandate that's being pursued and trying to get across the finish line. And operators know the challenges. This is a sensitive issue to talk about, right? It's a hard issue to deal with, but it is hard to be in the position where you are a hotel operator, where you have the safety of guests, the safety of your workers at play, and then welcoming in a population that is in need of of, of housing, in need of support. 
forcing this private business to be that for uh, this population uh, that increasingly has been part of downtowns where a lot of this foot traffic and a lot of hotel population is is a challenge and we have seen we have seen it play out in in grand rapids and detroit recently here in michigan we don't see legislation here at least not yet but it is a challenging balance to you know especially if you're an elected official to to try to be humane and to provide services for those individuals most in need those not having housing but to put that responsibility on these private businesses is a real challenge and, and it puts them in an impossible situation. It sort of reminds me a little bit, uh, I don't know why it triggers my memory, but when we talk about restaurants and ADA requirements about service animals and the challenge you always have as an operator of making sure you're accommodating those in need, but also there are some food safety issues that come into play when animals are gonna come into your restaurant. Right. And managing that properly and, and with a balance is, is a tricky situation for an operator to be in. And on the hotel side, this is increasingly a problem I think we're going to be talking about nationally. So, yes, this is an Arizona issue today, a Los Angeles issue today. Will it be a Michigan one tomorrow? I don't know. But uh, I just it's it's not the appropriate place to put hotels in the position of needing to be shelter of last resort for homeless individuals. This needs to be dealt with in, in each of these communities in a humane and, and, and reliable way for those individuals. But it can't it can't put that back on. The hotel community. So stay tuned. Uh, that's an issue that we are, are watching pretty closely across the country right now. Yeah, I think the overarching theme of everything we've covered is that we're actively watching other states and what happens to understand how it could impact our industry in Michigan. And we can worry about it before our members even need to worry about it. That's right. All right. So there was a independent contractor reform package of bills introduced last week, a 17 bill package intended to make significant changes to employment laws in Michigan and alters the definition of independent contractors and requires employers to tell employees the wages of similar similarly situated coworkers upon request. This was a, a large bill or a large package of bills. What's the summary? I think it's pretty early in yeah, the process. I think, this one, I think this one caught some individuals in the business community a little bit off guard. 17 bill package is pretty sizable and it came and had a hearing the day it was introduced. Uh, no one had, almost no one had any real idea what exactly they were looking at, what their testimony was going to essentially be about. And, and for us, it was a day we had a board of directors meeting. So we oh, were not right. actively on the scene watching this play out in, in committee. There's a lot in this and just, you know, if, for those whose blood is already boiling on this issue or, or feels their blood pressure rising, this has not even come out of a committee yet. So these these bills have a long way to go before they could theoretically be enacted. But there's some interesting changes. You know, some of the non-compete changes that and in, in this industry specifically targeted. Uh, so in general, and just employers would not be able to obtain non-compete agreements from employees without satisfying a whole lot of new requirements, including including posting a summary of that non-compete agreement in a conspicuous place in the workplace. As it relates to this industry, no one who qualifies as a low-wage employee can qualify for a non-compete at all. I'm not sure the degree to which this is still used in this industry right now, but a few years back, it was a practice as a way, because there's so much competition, that I work in this restaurant today, however, I can get 25 cents more by, by going across the street, uh, I'm going to do that. And it, and the attempt by the industry to create some more stability of their workforce by having these non-competes 
is getting a pretty strong pushback here. And you see that playing out in this, in this legislation. Again, I'm not sure how we're not seeing this in practice. I'm saying this anecdotally. I don't have empirical data, but I'm not seeing this in practice very often in this industry, but it is, it is directly targeted and under attack in this piece of, of legislation. So if you are one of the few operators still pursuing or still using non-compete agreements for your entry-level workers, it's, it's something you should be on notice about pretty quickly. Another big change is to, it involves the uh, Payment of Wages and Fringe Benefits Act. And this is where the misclassification of an employee comes into play. So independent contractors at, at play and, and, and trying to minimize, frankly, across all industries, the idea of independent contractors, trying to homogenize the workforce. Yeah, we talk all the time in this industry that this industry is unique and flexibility is, is a cornerstone. Cornerstone, cornerstone. <laughs> I'm hot. I'm hot about it. Uh, cornerstone for employers, but also a lot of the workforce liking and wanting that that level of flexibility because it meets them and their needs at that point in time in their life. This is trying to homogenize that situation. Uh, not a whole lot of independent contractors use day to day, let's say, in a restaurant, but some hotels use corporations that are, are third party uh, companies that they will use independent contracted labor and and also certainly on the banquet side when you mm-hmm. are ebbing and flowing tremendously that that these types of companies are used so we're watching this closely it's not entirely clear yet to what degree that is allowed or that it's trying to to weed out essentially that practice as well which is used not just in this industry but several and I again if you're on the banquet side tell me how you're supposed to keep a stable crew uh, workforce when you dramatically increase and decrease in size and need. And frankly, for a lot of those individuals who are a banquet server, that maybe is your second job. And it's a great way to pick up some extra cash on a weekend. You're going to go work a wedding, but it's not what you do day to day. And it's not what you necessarily want to do day to day. So we need to make sure that that's going to work for the industry as well. And for the workforce, frankly, that wants right. that type of opportunity. So that's hanging out there as well. There's some whistleblower protection acts out there, legislation out there as well uh, that gives more rights to individuals to suggest if something's not right and if they think wage fraud is going on, uh, that they are protected to uh, make that known. Gives the attorney general five and her office $5 million to enforce some of these things. That's That's a pretty big new one that we don't see that level of appropriation tied to uh, pieces of policy very often. So there's a lot here. I mean, again, you said 17 bills. It's a pretty big uh, employment law package. We'll be watching it closely and having conversations in conjunction with the business community, but also to make sure that the specific hospitality industry concerns are incorporated into discussion as well. Yeah, I have a feeling this probably isn't the last discussion we have on this podcast about this topic. Yeah. Okay, last thing on the list or that I have on the list is we filed an amicus brief with the Michigan Supreme Court this past week, correct? The issue that will never die. Yes, we've talked about this, right? A a big win court of appeals on on this adopt and amend issue that has led to an, an appeal by the plaintiffs to the Michigan Supreme Court. And right now, the Supreme Court is essentially taking, up until April 20th, was taking briefs for those that wanted to weigh in on the issue. And they have to decide as a, as a body whether they will t- accept that appeal uh, request. And so you'll hear from the Michigan Supreme Court again, probably not till late June, maybe early July, on whether this is going to be something they're going to hear. Uh, we made a pretty strong argument in the brief we filed this week that sides with the unanimous decision out of Court of Appeals that that is the right 
our argument to make constitutionally, again, regardless of how you feel about the policy, whether you support what the legislature did or not in 2018, that the constitutionality of what they did is just really clear cut. To, and, and to alter that, to, to try to alter course and go back to the 2018 law, which is five years from now, and let's say this is a next year decision made by the Supreme Court, you're talking about going back to a, a, a policy that is six years old at this point, or an entirely different universe where six years is played out, and the expectation, expectation changes to this industry would be dramatic and the so the impact of this industry is it would be dramatic disproportionately to this industry we make that clear in the brief as well so next steps we will we know definitively if they're hearing if they're taking it up by sometime this summer or could they not give that they're not on the gun too i think most most people expect that they will make a decision on this right that with the briefing schedule now complete they will they will review this at some po- the, the briefs at some point discuss this late spring early summer and then before they recess for for the summer you'll pro- we we anticipate we will hear whether they will accept this appeal or not got it all right i think that sums up everything for 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 fork's sake a lot of content a lot of content all right excited to welcome dave dittenberg president and ceo of dri and co-founder and president of bring your own data byod in the interview coming up next It's going to be a great interview. Stay tuned. So today we have David Dittenberg, uh, who is the president and CEO of Downtown Restaurant Investments in Midland, Michigan. For almost 30 years, Dave has owned restaurants in the Great Lakes Bay region of Michigan, including Tavern 101, Old City Hall Restaurant, Molasses Smokehouse, M2 Barbecue, and Drift Bay City, among others. Dave is also the founder and president of BYOD, Bring Your Own Data, a virtual restaurant management platform that combines restaurant operations with emerging technologies. Dave graduated from Aquinas College with a Bachelor of Science degree with majors in biology and chemistry. Notably, not hospitality. Dave earned his master's of management from Aquinas College and a master of business administration from Phoenix University. He is a past chairperson of the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association and member of the National Restaurant Association Educational Foundation Board of Trustees and the chair of their governance committee. Previously, Dave has also been named Entrepreneur of the Year by Central Michigan University Research Corporation, Fire Up Chips, and in 2020 was inducted into the Junior Achievement Business Hall of Fame. Dave resides in Midland and his wife, with his wife, Amy, and two kids, Drew and Kelsey. So uh, after all that, <laughs> we have run out of time. Uh, hell wow. Yeah, the, uh, it, when it's when it's red, it actually seems like sometimes that things have, you know, actually worked out okay. You know, that's <laughs> good. Uh, well, we and we didn't even mention the fact that you've got 15, 16, 17 other LLCs that we do not have time to get into today. But there's there's no sleep for Dave Dinber, the man who is always coming up with new ideas. And I'm going to be honest with you, most of them, pretty good. Well, I appreciate that, Justin. Emily, thanks for having me today. Uh, and, and as far as the LLCs, uh, we've already had enough nightmares as tax season just ended last week. So we don't want to talk about that anyway. So that's good. <laughs> we'll do our best not to trigger you. All right. Emily, you have the first question for Dave. Yeah. So you just got back from Arizona last night, I think you said, on a flight back to Michigan, but you've been attending the Restaurant Leadership Conference. How was the conference and were there any big takeaways going into 2023? Yeah, the, the conference was great. You know, the, the so many great leaders there had a chance to 
watch a, a panel that Michelle Corsmo with the National Restaurant Association did last night, main, mainly around technology. And I think one of the big tidal waves that's coming for the industry is in the form of technology, right? There's no shortage of technology. Uh, inflation, obviously, is something that really is continuing to to be a big part of all the conversations that are happen, happening and kind of general economic conditions. But there's a lot there's a lot of great things for the industry. Uh, we had a chance to do a podcast while we were there with uh, with Steve, the president of the Arizona Restaurant Association, who also sends his best and and says that Michigan is one of the gold standards. So spoke very highly of you and, and the organization. But Steve told me, it had a stat in the interview that said, for the first time ever that restaurant sales eclipsed, gro- or eclipsed grocery store sales uh, which I thought really is telling in terms of really some of the positive things that are happening in the industry. You know, there was a lot of things when it comes to tech regarding, you know, loyalty, AI and robots, which I think during the pandemic was really hot. Seems like people are starting to maybe soften a little bit on some of those, just realizing that the overcorrection needs to come back to something that's more hospitality based, right? Which I think is really exciting to see. So those were the big takeaways. I would say, and also uh, got a chance to meet Derek Jeter, which was pretty cool. Wow. You maybe, maybe yeah. slipped on the lead there. With all due respect to Steve Chukri of the Arizona Restaurant Association, Jeter. Wow. Jeter, Jeter was good. He was great, too. Great speaker. Great way to end out the end the, the conference. And, you know, so many good leadership uh, around the industry and in, in supporting companies that support the industry. So it was really a great conference and great to be there. And our own chairman, Billy Downs, was there also. And, and Billy and I had a chance to connect on just how how well we thought uh, the conference was from an informational point of view. So I think some really good things and, and uh, trends that here in Michigan we're seeing as well. Well, I know you were there on behalf of BYOD. So let's get into it a little bit. Uh, this is this is your baby. This is a project you've been working on. We are very proud to have played a role in the process here of, of BYOD's development. But talk about the creation of Bring Your Own Data, uh, what exactly it's trying to offer in the marketplace, and, and talk a little bit about how being an operator, frankly, uh, led you to this opportunity uh, in the first place. Yeah, I think the, the that's the big difference, I think, in terms of where the inspiration came from, um, from building something from an operator's view out versus a tech view that was pushed down. And really kind of the initial stages of BYOD, when I was still in day-to-day operations more, you know, I've loved technology since, you know, I saw the first point of sale system introduced in 1995, right? And always have tried to really press the envelope on adopting technologies almost to a detriment. And so going back to a few years ago when BYOD was, you know, kind of came to light, we had 17 different disparaging digital systems in our restaurants. Loyalty was over here, point of sale, you know, all these different checklists, log books, you know, everything that was was out there and nothing spoke to one another, right? And I just said, you know, from an operator's perspective, why you know, do we continue to get all this technology and, you know, we continue to see declining profits. We continue to see the same challenges that we've had for the last, you know, 30 years of being in the business. And is there a way to be able to use emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning to make technology simple and accessible to ownership, right? Because I think, you know, that's one of the things it it, it sounds so unapproachable, right? Those are ideas that were only 
available to Fortune 50 companies through, you know, system integration through companies like SAP, right? And it's expensive. And, you know, where does that fit and how does that all work together? So my thought process was to find a way to be able to bring all that information and data together, be able to throw out the 99% of the information that doesn't matter, and then look at the 1% that does and get that information or get that decision based on that information, utilizing that technology to the person in the moment, the managers, the GMs that can make those decisions in the moment versus looking at a PL six you know weeks down the road going, oh my costs are out of line. So you know the idea was could you take all that information in you know from anything from video to audio to text and put that in a way where something or someone, which is where Mabel was invented from, could take all that and process that and then communicate back with the managers, right? So I am, even though it's technology driven, I don't think that technology can replace the human element. I'm a, I I like to say augmented intelligence versus artificial intelligence, meaning utilizing those tools to be able to, you know, help the manager learn, train, make better decisions, but replacing them has never been my thought process behind that, but simplification and accessibility. So, Talk me through this because you know this and I know this. Independent operators, the vast majority of who our membership are, are, are in the moment. You talked about being in the moment. They are in the moment day to day. It is sometimes challenging for us to, to have them see the, the big picture because they're so engrossed in the day to day management. How do you convince them to make this investment in technology? Because it's critical and it's coming and it's it's here in so many other industries You know, are, are far down the path where, but this industry has always been a little bit of a slow adopter to, to emerging tech and trends. How, how do you make that sale to, to an independent operator who maybe is listening to this podcast that this is the way of the future, this is the way you're going to stay alive, stay afloat, stay profitable in a challenging environment? Yeah, that's a great question. I, uh, and again, I think the, the investment is more about the investment in time. If you look at where the technology failures come, they come in implementation, right? It's very difficult. Most of the systems in the past have been, you know, I mean, some systems and, you know, it's not that any of the systems are bad systems, but, you know, you take ERPs and all these things that have been around there. Some of them take nine to 12 months to implement, right? So, you know, you have to take away that time from your staff from your your management and put that in there. And that's a much bigger investment than, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month in a license fee, right? So the big thing that we've been trying to sell the operator on is the first question is really low uh, barrier to entry, right? Something that we can go in within a couple of days, plug in a couple of things like point of sale that isn't, you know, they don't have to do anything other than, just allow the system to do its work. The other thing that's a really big barrier and it's more than cost is trust. Everyone thinks that you're trying to go out there and steal information and compare information. And you know that's one of the big things that, that we built the system on, the platform on was bring your own data was it's yours, right? And I always felt like leading up to this that there are all these other systems. Not only did you have all these inputs, but you had no output that you could really utilize because the companies owned that. I wanted something that the operators could really have to be their own, right? And and really 
make sure that it was in a protected environment. So I think once you get past the the trust and the time piece, you know, then I think you just hit on it. I, I mean, technology in terms of, you know, we've seen people migrate out of our industry or we've seen new people enter the industry. I think the only way that we can really keep up with that, you know, because our, our, our business today is no different than it's going to be yesterday or tomorrow, meaning the doors are going to, the lights are going to flip on at 11 o'clock and people are going to start coming in. And the customers don't care that, oh, we've had all these challenges within the industry. They're coming in there to eat and drink and they expect that, you know, to, to be ready to go. And so to me, I believe that the only way that you can bring our industry up to where it needs to be from a hospitable point of view is that you have to utilize utilize responsible technology that allows that to happen quickly. You know, otherwise it it requires when I first started with Outback, we had a training team for one unit that we'd have 10 people on a training team. We're lucky to have one or two designated trainers in a restaurant. So I really believe that some of these mundane tasks could re- could easily be replaced or or done by technology and allow the people to be able to do what it is that they do well from a hospitality point of view. And that's what really what we try to tell the ownership from a sale point of view. It's like, yeah, digital's a little bit intimidating, right? Because it's not going to say it's not going to solve everything, but if you don't, you know, take those mundane tasks and digitize them, then it just requires more people that we can't attract or have in our places to do that. So those are kind of the the, the thought process behind the sale of the 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 uh, to the the operator. Because you're exactly right, Justin. It's intimidating and it's hard to change the way you do things. Perfect. I think that's. Sorry, go ahead. No, go for it. I I think that that's a key point because one of the questions that we had and something you touched on in your feedback from the restaurant leadership conference is that balance between this new wave of technology, but also between that and hospitality and the core of hospitality as we know it. So I, I find that interesting. And before we get into that, I want to back up a little bit for the listener who might not have enough history on BYOD, but you mentioned Mabel. So who or what is Mabel? Yeah, so so Mabel is actually a our avatar, our persona, who's actually based off of my longest standing employee I ever had at uh, my restaurant. Her name was Rose. She probably she hated me when I named it Mabel, but it's part of the deal. Mabel is, you know, the person that always has your back, that always makes sure things don't fall through the cracks. She's the virtual restaurant assistant, right? And and so you know, the the idea is Mabel is, even though we can't sit there and see every stream and every transaction and everything that we have available to us, Mabel can, right? And so where I thought, and in, in, in different use cases in different industries over the last 10 years, where I saw technology really do a good job was utilizing and, and you know, go back to the IBM to Watson, right? Watson's a great example of that. Computers can read listen, process faster, right? And yet on the other side of it, they also can throw away what they don't need to read, process, and and hear, right? So Mabel is that person that's kind of collecting all that information and working side by side with the manager, right? And when you need an answer to something or you need to make a decision, Mabel sends you a text and says, do this, right? And, And that's so, so Mabel is our AI. She's the person that makes it that simple and accessible for, for the management, but it's not something that a manager needs to go back and, you know, sit in a back room and sift through a bunch of reports and, 
pivot tables and all that kind of stuff. Mabel's, you know, got the the managers back, and that's kind of the the core delivery of what BYOD is. And then think of BYOD as a whole of the brain that collects all your information, just like a normal manager would do, right? That just doesn't get tired and you know burn out. <laughs> so that that's uh, I guess a brief history of Mabel and BYOD. Well, no, it's fascinating, and I, we could get into the the sort of meta conversation on AI in general. But how did you how did you train Mabel? How did you prepare this AI to understand this industry and what the objective of a manager at site of a restaurant would would need and could help? How do you how do you how did you create that process? I know that this isn't a tech podcast, but I'm sort of fascinated how how we taught it to get where it is now. Sure, and, and I I mentioned my co-founder who was one of the most brilliant people I've ever met, but also very practical. He was, you know, he introduced me to machine learning and artificial intelligence. And at the base of it, you know, he used to say, there's no AI without IA. So there's no artificial intelligence without information architecture. And by the way, I'm not an, a data person, but that has stuck with me because what information architecture means is you have to have good data sets in order to train models, right? Tech people don't necessarily have good models and they build algorithms that don't really take into account the things that we deal with, right? So it was the first year was essentially coming up with training sets of data using, you know, our own restaurants, using other partners' restaurants, and then allowing, you know, we we had five data scientists. Like, again, if you had asked me these questions however many years ago, I didn't even know what these things were, but I was lucky enough to deal with someone like Frank and a team that he put together that essentially took these millions and millions of data points, right, that they would continue to analyze and, you know, find out what were the what were the correlations, right? So you had to go through that training first. And and I'm talking millions and millions of data points. The data science Scientists would then work with programmers who would build the algorithms, right, based on the information that meant. And then we trained Mabel based on those data sets. And that's what the that's the basis of information architecture. And that's why I think a lot of tech falls short, because they try to go right to a commercial product that's sure it's going to give a result. But what they train it on is not going to give it a result that you can trust. Right. It's not going to be based on true day to day decision making and that's where we've seen and and a lot frankly a lot of the tech that we've used has fallen short and I'm like we need to do better than that so it was painful guys like sometimes taking you know pieces of paper and making them digital to be able to put them into something where you could have a computer analyze it because without data quality to train it that's even a bigger challenge so not to get too far in the weeds there but it was a a, a lot of old fashions and a lot of nights with the frustration <laughs> of trying to put that together. But thankfully, we really had, you know, these high level, you know, I, I mentioned SAP, Frank was one of the original 10 people at an SAP table, you know, and they used to do this with things like, you know, chemical plants that they needed to make sure that didn't blow up. So I'm like, hey, if they can, you know, water down data points in that industry, I think if we utilize that type of mindset and spend the time and 
and really get the data sets where we can train the algorithms and make them, you know, uh, pertinent, that we could do the same. And and by the way, machine learning, remember, the computer, the Mabel continues to get better based on every time something happens. That's the beauty behind it. It's not just a, you know, one plus two equals three. One plus two may equal five at some point down the road. And that's kind of the idea of how you build those systems to learn and think and adjust over time and in different situations. Well, on this product, seeing is believing, right? You got to actually see this in action. How does someone go about, how, do, how does the interested, but still a little confused operator who may be listening, get a demo? How do they get engaged in this process to learn a little bit more and maybe make what I think is going to be a necessary step for this industry 10 years down the road? And how do they, how do they get the jump and be one of the early, the early adopters and, and to get an edge now? Yeah, the um, and we've and by the way, um, you know, the MRLA has been a wonderful partner with us since the beginning of the pandemic with things like contact tracing and, and, and getting other tools out to members. And so, you know, frankly, we for the last year, we've just been working on really making sure that the product fit the needs of the end user. So we were probably ready a year ago and we've been very slow to roll out certain things and and do some controlled beta tests. Now that, you know, we went commercial starting in March, but we're still growing at a pace that we know is going to fit our end users better. And so, yeah, I know we're doing some things with you guys in terms of demos that our people are going to be hosting. And then our sales department, we have, we're up to four people in our sales department that do nothing but inbound sales calls and demos. And, and, you know, just our uh, our website you can sign up on our website byod.ai for a demo and there's, uh, there's you know, the plug yeah there's the plug that's it <laughs> we, but, um, we, we got it in all right good good love it we'll talk about I, I mean I'm just sort of fascinated and have been for a while with AI in general ChatGPT is now part of my my daily life do you incorporate into your life in some way shape or form separate from just your work with Mabel or how have you integrated it into your own life right now and, and where do you if you are you're a visionary in general, right? You see a lot of opportunity in a lot of different ways. How do you see, broadly speaking, not just this industry, but where do you see AI uh, and machine learning taking taking all of us in the coming years? And I probably have a little bit of a different perspective because while I'm not a technologist, I brought up IBM Watson. I would say my initial entry point to data analytics was on the medical side. And, and that's another story that I won't get into. But we were early into IBM Watson, right? And so, you know, my, the guy that I was working with at the time just said that, hey, you know, remember all of this technology is, is, it's open source and it has been open source forever, right? Through places like GitHub and, you know, algorithms that used to cost a million dollars to build, you can now go program on GitHub and, and get those things for essentially, you know, thousands of pennies, right? So, my point is, is that I've seen a lot of this before, and I'm I'm extremely skeptical about the use case. And two of the people that interned for me were part of the founding group of ChatGPT and OpenAI. So, uh, you know, been very familiar on on in some smart people. You know, you start throwing people from MIT and Harvard into that mix, and it's it's pretty impressive. However, and I ha- I just had this discussion at RLC because there was a lot of buzz around it. And my my thought process is, is while I think it's there's some novelty and some really cool stuff, I worry about the IA, the information architecture and the data as 
how ChatGPT and OpenAI are going to make their decisions because I think it it's too broad, right? I think if you're an 11th grader writing a paper, I think it's great, right? I think it's it's a really good thing on any topic that you want to do, but specifically to restaurants right now, I would be very I would be very skeptical by bringing bias and opinion sources off, which is what they're using to Mabel to, because that's where I think AI and machine learning can get really skewed. Because at the end of the day, if you're using the internet as a source of information, right? And chat GPT and whatever you're going to do is just going to go out, go out and want to pull every source. You know, you guys are in this business and we've taught, you know, seen how articles and opinions can differ so, so broadly. I'm sorry, I go back to, I'll, I'll use transactional data all day long in research and things that tell me, you know, percentage points. And that's where I think my background in the the medical and chemistry point of view. At the end of day, at the end of the day in a lab report, if it says it's 0.001, it's 0.001, right? It's a data game. And I think there's too much right now, too much and it's open open source, right? So it, there's too much uh bias and too much variation that I think that could be it this is where I think that type of technology gets dangerous, personally, right? I think it yeah, no, I think I think that makes yeah. I think that makes perfect sense. And and obviously a good reason why BYOD would make sense to specifically use for your needs uh, in the restaurant industry. It's been trained and developed to meet those needs, trying to replace that with with some sort of open source would, would not get that job done. And I've, you know, I've used it. I, I've used it in interesting ways. I've asked it to make persuasive arguments on a variety of issues that we deal with on the advocacy side, not because I want it to make the argument for me. I want to see where there is more compelling data that it's pulling from on which side. So I understand essentially either what we are going to be up against in terms of an argument and and whether the other side of that argument is is equally capable of, of making the case, right? And or, or is there enough data that it's pulling to make a, a better or at least as good argument. It's been sort of fascinating to see where it comes from uh, on these things. There's, let's just say there's there's some shortfalls on uh, on where the good guys are on some of these issues. Yeah, and I, I uh, Emily, do you ever use it for anything on just a daily basis? Have you played around with it? I haven't done a lot in it, but the from a marketing standpoint, I find it interesting for it to write like social copy for you and different things like that. But your point's interesting too, because if you think about if you're looking for proof or validation on your own opinion about something, you'll find it on the internet one way or the other. So I think that's an interesting point with the the open sourcing. Yeah, it's it'll it I, I think again, you know, when I look at I, I love the idea of ble- bleeding edge technology. I think it's great. And there's a lot of smart people doing a lot of smart things there, but I think it's just too broad. And when they have a chat GPT digitized restaurant KPI list. That's everything that we as industry people have said, yeah, it's good. Then I'll plug it into chat GPT. But I watched a lot of people from the start in the startup world initially go, hey, we're going to plug into it. And we had that discussion internally. And I said, you know, from a marketing point of view or from a cash raising point of view or from that tech pushdown point of view, it's great. But is that really what's good and what we're trying to solve here? I'll be a late adopter on that one and and we'll see what happens because I think either way would be win. I think it'll get better. Uh, but right now, I just feel like it's just too dangerous to introduce that kind of thought process to something that's been trained to do it based on data-driven decisions. That's my two cents. 
All right, byod.ai. Definitely go and get a, a tour. Take a tour. Under, get familiar with this program. And then uh, Dave's here and his team is here to make sure that uh, they can answer any of your questions. But this this future is coming, whether you want it or not. Get a, get a, Be an early adopter and, and get an edge in a, in a challenging marketplace, which is, I think, where we want to go next a little bit. You've been in this industry for a very long time. Where do you see, what are your, some of your thoughts on where hospitality is going? I think it's changed dramatically. You are right. I just did an uh, an interview yesterday with Axios about the fact that there is, that people are spending more at restaurants than grocery stores at this point. It is ingrained in their life, no matter what, right? And and it even despite dramatic price increases, we've all had to take because of inflationary pressures. It, it the restaurants are going to be an increasing part of our life. Where, how do you see that going forward? And and how do you how do you succeed in an environment with with uh, with those changes? I think the the Axios that study the um, some of the comments that came out of RLC and other conferences that we were at. You know, the seventy five percent of restaurant operators plan on investing in tech. Operators that use tech drive like twenty five percent more customers. That type of stuff. But I I don't I, I continue to to not hear how technology helps the operations make it more hospitable. I see where the benefit is for the the restaurants, but I believe when I really look at it, I had this conversation with my team and with some people at RLC, I think it's going to revert back to being about hospitable for the guests. I mean, all the technology has to be the an afterthought in terms of operations so that the people come in there and just enjoy themselves. And whatever helps those processes that's fine, you know, but at the end of the day, it, it has to go back the other way towards people that are sitting in our chairs need to be the number one reason we're there. It's not, you know, we're out there as operators going, oh, what's the next new thing from a technology platform standpoint, right? So to me, I'm going to still go in and I'm going to invest more in technology that allows my people to engage with my guests more. And that's where I personally think based on the good operators and the people that I know, they want to invest more time and energy in the, the, the experience into hospitality. So to me, while, while it's there's a lot of great technology, I still believe, you know, and, and I believe in third party and I believe in some of these other things in terms of revenue, but it has to be good because if it's not good, you know, people won't go out, right? So I think we've, and we've, we've as an industry, have really been able to take advantage of a, kind of a, a light a light year lap on what we saw for 20 years in that space. And that's great, but I think it's time with that overcorrection for it to come back to the middle and start looking at how we can, you know, when I hear, oh, we're going to close dining rooms and we're going to, I mean, that's not what it says. You know, the stats say that, you know, 75% of people want the experience of dining, right? 10% are undecided and 10 10% don't want to go out. Is that, yeah, maybe, I, I hope my math makes sense there, but I just heard that number. It's it's much more- You'll fix it if you weren't. Right, but but you know what I mean? It's But it's much more uh, balanced towards people want to go out and have that waiter and waitress experience. They want to have that, that dining room experience. And, you know, again, I just- I believe that that's where it's going to be based on the the good operators and the good people in this industry. That that's where it goes. So it's probably going simplified more by utilizing the technology as an advantage versus 
you know, automation and robots, which I know is a little bit of an oxymoron from a guy that's now saying that AI can help the industry, right? But I, I want to use it in a responsible way that is, you know, not a complete sh- overcorrection and shift towards some people, how I, they their opinions that they think that that's where the opinion or that's where the industries go. Well, there's a there's definitely a difference there. And the reality of it is that Michigan, at least we were just talking about this yesterday, Justin, we are one of the slowest recovering states in terms of employees. Right. So use your what I hear you saying, Dave, is use your employees to do the hospitality side of it and be in front of the people and deliver the experience and then let Mabel, who, you know, is Mabel, not necessarily a robot in your back room you know, give you that guidance and and run on the background, but it's not eliminating, it's not replacing with robots and, and that sort of scary stuff that can start to freak people out or facial recognition things. I mean, people just get nervous about As things they like should. that. As they should, right? I think a lot of those things can just be used in such a detrimental way. And my question is why, right? Like, why, why do you need to do that? Like, why, why does it have to go down to the person I mean, you think about what's happened with web optimization and all that kind of stuff, like it's annoying, you know, and I was reading Danny Meyer's book and he was talking about the digital experience and how they went and they could say, oh, well, this person likes to drink this and likes to sit here and likes to order this. And he goes, yeah, the second that you assume that that's what they want, they don't want to sit there. They don't want to be seen and they want to order something else. Right. So it's not just about convenience. And you need, and again, by the way, I don't think AI, everybody's, oh, can you predict what somebody wants to order? And I look at them and say, why would I want to do that? I want the, I want the experience between the service person in full service restaurant or even at a counter service. Why, why can't that person sell to what the need of the customer is versus what we assume? I, I mean, I just think it's, it's irresponsible sometimes to think that technology can replace everything. And that's not what history shows. So. Not for this industry, right? We are the human-centered uh, industry of all of them. If it makes it more efficient, I might want to go grab my Panera that I ordered on my app and just grab it and walk out for lunch because I'm in a hurry. But when I'm at dinner that night with my family, I want an experience that's memorable and enjoyable. And if, if Mabel is freeing up your staff to be able to be more human-centric, more human-focused and making sure that experience is special, you'll get people coming back. I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, well said by both of you. All right, lightning round. Emily, it's go time. Let's do it. All right. So light, you're familiar with our lightning round, I would assume, the most popular uh, segment of this podcast. So we'll hit you with some questions and then get you out of here. Number one, how many rounds of golf have you played in 2023? Too many and not very well, but I'm going to say probably 20. 20. I don't know. Too many exist. There is snow on the ground in Michigan still. 20 rounds of golf for Dave Dinmer already this year. I actually would have taken the over on that. So that is, that's impressive. I love it. While still getting business done every single day. Okay, next up. (laughs) What's the last song you listen to? Dropkick Murphy's Shipping Up to Boston. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Uh, What's the last show that you streamed? Oh, this is an easy one. Succession. The best. Oh, two podcasts in a row where that's the been best. the answer. I'm pretty sure. So, so good. good, so good. We could do it. We could do another hour just talking <laughs> succession, but we won't. Not today. All right. I still, Mabel, I still we'll haven't started it. And we'll get Mabel to analyze it. That's right. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite city in Michigan? And I'm going to say you can't say you know Bay City or Midland. Grand Rapids, love it. 
it's uh went to school there and still consider it kind of home i i was just there i absolutely love the place all right and what is i forgot i put this on here what is your go-to late night snack <laughs> snacks didn't happen right uh <laughs> this is an easy one uh todd callower keeps me stocked with uh riba's cheddar caramel corn mix the victor's blend i have like a whole cabinet of it. my wife and kids think i'm crazy I'll wake up some mornings at, you know, I'm like watching TikToks and, and I, there's like an outline of me in the popcorn in my bed. It's just, it's, it's terrible. That terrible is and great. so much better an answer than we could have ever hoped to for. And, and we got a Tad, Todd Keller drop in. I love it. Perfect. Uh, all right, Dave Dibber, thank you for sharing some of your valuable time with us and for informing all of our listeners a little bit more about BYOD. It is the future. Get on it. Thank Thanks you, a lot, you guys. Thanks for having me.